I don't know if this is a great way to put it, but I think if I had to analyze what was going inside of me when someone's asking me for money is don't ever ask me to put money into something your heart's not in. I guess I just don't want to do that. If your heart's not in it, I'm not putting my money into it. We continue the conversation about maximizing money for ministry. And today we are going into a realm we believe many in youth ministry don't know how to navigate. Asking a potential donor for money when they have the means to give to your vision. I'm Jeff Eckert. I'm Jason Brewer. And this is The Thought Factory. The Thought Factory podcast is brought to you by Never the Same, cultivating students through biblical discipleship and spiritual disciplines using theology, community, and technology. Learn more at neverthesame.org. Welcome to The Thought Factory. We are super excited that you guys are choosing to join us for this episode because obviously we can't force you to listen. You can shut us off anytime you want to, but you are still deciding to listen. And So today we are continuing the conversation of maximizing money for ministry. If you haven't listened to our last episode, it is on the topic of money as well, making money for ministry, where we look at the student's view of money as well as leveraging what we have been given in our budget to be able to make more and make a greater impact. So you'll want to check that out. Next week, we are actually going to take a week off. It's a little bit of a spring break for where we are at. So we will not be releasing a podcast next week, but we will be back on the following week with the topic of Bible engagement, where we are talking to our own Lindsay Gorvet, our Director of Bible Engagement, and hearing more from her on the importance of getting your students engaged in the Bible. All right, we have a special guest in the studio this week, and Jason usually do a little background research on this person. So we have Bill Johnson. Let's tell us a little bit about Bill Johnson. I'm really excited to have Bill Johnson in the studio because Bill is an Olympian, and whenever you have an Olympic athlete in the studio, it, gets, it just brings out the, the competitiveness out of me. And so we have the first American male to win an Olympic gold medal in alpine skiing, Bill Johnson. Bill, thank you for joining us in the studio today. Uh, <clears throat> I don't, I don't think that's me. Um, I'm, I'm Bill Johnson, but it, uh, not, not the downhill skier. And if you it, saw it me, says, you'd know why. You well, I, I figured you won it back in the '80s, '84, and that's so that that gives you some grace. On um, once you win the gold medal, you kind of everything else goes downhill. <laughs> oh, very funny. <laughs> I'm not that Bill Johnson. I've, I've been a financial advisor and stockbroker and financial planner for like 30 years. Yeah, um, you're quoted as saying you ski to die. Um, and so you died in January of 2016. Um, so did how, you? How does that feel? How, do, how does that feel? I feel bad for that, Bill Johnson. Uh, I'm I'm with you. I'm still here, so I'm. I guess I feel good for me. Again, once again, your research is way off. <laughs> so, Bill Johnson, the Bill Johnson here, is not the one from Sports Illustrated. He is somewhat. He's a good friend, somewhat of a what I would say a Renaissance man, a a financial advisor, a stockbroker. Uh, ordained minister. Yep. A motorcycle rider, which I really like. We've been on several yep. adventures together. Yes. Which we could do a whole podcast series on, but we won't. And um, so, of all those things, the thing that brings you here with us is your perspective and view on 
money and finances. And that in our last episode, we talked about that. So again, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and we talk about how to maximize money for ministry. So Bill, we brought him with us because we really admire his view and understanding and practice about money and ministry. And he's served in so many different roles. He served on church boards, uh, district boards for denominations, um, has served in the role of pastor, but has always kept the marketplace job of the stockbroker and financial advisor. So you bring a lot of wealth of information and perspective. So let's first start off by just talking about your view of money. You know, I tell people all the time, and I remind myself all the time, money is a tool. It is a tool. It's nothing more. It's nothing less. I tell people it's only money. You you never want to look at it as anything more or anything less. So I think that's the first place you want to start. I think as a donor, a person that's often asked for money and has done asking for funds too, um, I think you just want to keep that in mind so that when you go to the donor, you are not overly dramatic and, and see it as something way more than it is, and that it's also nothing. I don't want someone sitting in front of me that's flippant, and not because they're flippant, but because I view my role as a donor in a pretty strong fiduciary capacity. There's a due diligence piece that has to happen. So so someone that just comes and goes, well, yeah, you got money, just what's the big deal? That's not going to fly with me. And the person that comes in and is saying, wow, you know, I need $1,000 as if they're asking for a million. That's not going to work either. So I think finding that balance with a donor to recognize it's only money, but that there's also a fiduciary aspect to it. It's only a tool, but that I don't want to just be flippant with it either. For the sake of everybody listening in the audience, uh, could you define fiduciary? Awesome. Uh, Yes. The Bible has a lot to say about fiduciary, and it's a person that is entrusted with something that is not theirs, and that there's ultimately some kind of accounting for what they've been entrusted with. We know the story of the talents is a pretty common one, but then in the in the business world, a fiduciary is that exact person. So when someone gives me their money to invest, I have to invest upon their behalf and give an accounting for what it is that I do to show that I'm a good steward of what they've given me. So that fiduciary is a powerful biblical term that carries over in the donor world because many donors carry that feeling of, hey, God has entrusted me with this. I need to show good fiduciary work. So what goes through your mind when you do get asked for money, when somebody's like identifying you as a potential donor, recognizes that you have the means, uh, speak for people on your side of the table as far as what they're thinking and expecting. Okay, that's great. I, I think, so if I, if I had a bunch of youth workers or, or folks here that were thinking about raising money, the f- first thing I would have them from a very practical standpoint is to recognize that Money and a, and a donor have two parts to them. There's the mind part, like what happens in our thoughts. That's somewhat of the fiduciary piece. And then there's the heart piece. There's the emotion behind things. Now, donors sometimes fall in one camp or the other. Some donors are very mind. It's a very methodical, very fiduciary, and that's okay. It's okay for a donor feel a stronger tendency towards that fiduciary aspect. So if you're going to ask that kind of donor, you're going to have to be ready to answer very logistical questions of how much and when and where and what do you need and why and how we do the money. There's very logistical things. 
and that's okay. And then there's the heart piece that says, hey, I, I, I as a donor, I've got money to give, but I want to hear the story. I want to know what's going on. I want to hear about transformation. And so the heart piece has both passion and story behind it. So if you're going to be asking donors, you want to try to have a little bit of a groundwork to maybe know where they are. And many of us are the blend of both. And if you're not sure, I would tell you, ask the donor. If you're not sure, just say, hey, I interact with people, Mr. Johnson, and, you know, Bill, tell me, are you more of a heart person? Are you a mind person? And which do you like and in what order? And then just let them answer. And they'll say, well, yeah, I got money and we'll talk about logistics. But if you don't grab my heart, the money's not going to come. Now, some donors aren't like that, but I think it's very okay for you to go to the donor first in maybe that first interaction and say, I'm not sure where you are. Tell me, are you more of a mind person, logistics, thoughts? Are you more of a heart person, emotion, passion, story, and then let them answer that. So one of the things that we're saying before we start recording here is this this has such potential, this episode, to change lives because this can impact students. For example, students maybe that don't have a lot of means that can go to a camp or an event or retreat or be involved in something where someone can invest, you know, through a ministry to allow students to experience things. So my question is, <clears throat> how do you find or identify potential donors? That is really good. Uh, donors are, are different because there's some that you will think right away might have a lot to give, and that may or may not be the case. So the first thing I would do is I would make no assumptions about a person's ability to give if you aren't really intimately aware of how their life works. If you know who they are and you see them in church here and there, you don't know enough to know about them as a person. Because one of the things I found is there's a whole group of people, of donors, who live very modest and off-the-radar lives, who are the ones that often turn around a check, and I'm often surprised myself. I'm like, really? I, I did not see that coming. So I would just say, don't look maybe to identify donors as much as I would say, I want to find out who in a church or wherever I am that I can just tell the story, the vision. And here you want to talk about the big picture of what you see. What do you see if you're a youth worker, you're you know responsible for a ministry? I hate the word has been tossed around so much, but the vision and mission. So to me, I was taught this a long time ago, vision is what I see. I see a vision. Mission is what I'm doing to get there. So you want to be able to articulate your vision and your mission for that ministry and then just find out, I just want to sit down with people over a cup of coffee and I want to tell you the vision and mission of what I'm trying to do. And that's the first place I would start. I would never probably even ask anything more than that other than I want to get to know them as a person. And does any of this matter to you? And is it important? Would you want to meet again to hear more? That's the that's the thing I've noticed over the years is there's that I think it was a book but there's that concept the millionaire next door you kind of mm-hmm. reference that idea of of people that that looked and lived probably very modest but mm-hmm. um, they might be multimillionaires you'd never know it by the clothes they wear by the cars they drive and uh, so yeah I think assuming is a dangerous thing because it it puts you in a position where you start categorizing people without knowing them so I, that's that's incredible to know. And I look back, wish I would have understood that more, because then you do the opposite. You see people that live in great houses, drive nice cars, and you think, well, they got it going on. They'll be a great donor, and they might be just maxed, you know, credit cards and debt and all that. So there's two sides to it. And I think the under 
underlying issue behind that, which is a very dangerous one. I have to tell you, this is a, was a personal thing in the pastoral side of what I did, that if you're not careful, this we all do this, you start to view the utilitarian value of a relationship, which is what can you do for me? You don't come out and say it, but it comes out in this way. So if you get a, you come back into your church or wherever you are and you've got a phone call from someone you think really can write you a big check or do whatever you need, and then you, you get a phone call message from a, maybe a person that's not in that place, and you immediately say, well, I'm going to call this one back first. Yeah. It's so subtle how the utilitarian view of relationships comes in, and the beauty of Jesus is he never did that. So the when you go looking for donors, I would tell people, don't look for donors. I know that seems dumb, but don't look for donors. Look to share the story of the vision and mission that you have. Sounds corny, but then let God do what God does in that interaction. Obviously, the topic of money can be awkward to discuss, depending on where you stand in belief and position of resources and where the other person stands. And so to approach that topic for the first time with somebody without necessarily building that relationship, how can you guide them into having that potential conversation and with that potential donor? No, that's good. I think when you talk about that heart piece we said in, in, in the head piece, there are some people that you'll interact with and it's okay for a donor to just write a check. I'll be honest, with you, there's times I just say, hey, I get what you're doing. Don't want to put all of me into that. And in all honesty, probably 75% of the time, that's where I'll put, I get it. That matters. That expands God's kingdom. That's part of what we do. And we'll write you a check and that's great. And that's okay. And, and I think in a weird way, we don't thank that person enough. I don't need everybody to be fully in up to their eyeballs in it with me. So I think that's one part. But I think as you interact with donors, you will find there's going to be some that, that can give you money and their heart. That's maybe the, the better scenario. But then there's some that maybe don't have the means, but they catch the story and they say, I, I don't have, but, but I can, let's get some people around that can hear more about this story because I'm moved by the story. So I think all you're doing is you're just telling the story with clarity. The, the word, in, in, and Jeff and I talk all the time, I'm huge on clarity. So what are you asking me for? You know, how much is it? When do you need it by? And are you okay hearing yes or no? I think those are okay with donors. Does it bother you that if somebody approached you and knowing that they found out that you had means and then all they're doing is approaching you because you have the financial resources? That is a good question. Um, none of us are, have everything figured out with money. In fact, for all that I know about money, I've told many people I feel like I know very little about it. But there's one thing that does happen. When when money happens to us, if we get a bonus or what in our family kind of called found money, we actually start praying, okay, God, we are going to be looking for needs to come our way. We teach our children to have this little pool of money and say, okay, here's this money. Now let's begin praying that God brings us needs. And so we don't necessarily see it as, uh, well, uh, there's no passion behind it. We are out looking for needs to put money into because that's how we view the funds we get. So it's okay to just have people ask me for money. I have no problem with that. Not, not every donor might be that way. I wouldn't think I could speak for all of them. But I recognize that money gets a lot of things done. And so just saying to me, I would be okay if somebody said, Bill, I need to let you know, I just am in a need right now. And they would tell me the need. Here's the dollar amount. Here, I don't know if you can help or not. If you can, great. 
Maybe someday we'll talk more about more things you can do. But right now, it's just money. I'm okay knowing that. In in my experience in learning about fundraising, it's been interesting because I see so much of a parallel between fundraising and prayer. And that sounds really strange. I've never heard anybody talk about this, but the more you know the donor and the more you have a mutual shared heart, the more mutual benefit you can get. And so if you know, like what you shared earlier, if you know they're a heart person or if you know they're an information person, that shapes your approach to them. Much much as our approach to prayer, the more you know about God, the better you can pray. Mm-hmm. The more you know about his word that describes him and what he cares about, what he's passionate about. So if I go to a donor that could care less about youth ministry, I know more than likely, in most cases, they're not going to give because that's just not their heart. And I don't blame them for that. Sure. Just not where they are. And that's what I hear you saying, too, is, is you know the person. So the more you know people in general, the the better you're going to be in this because you know where their heart is and you know this is a person I can probably have a deeper conversation about. And like you said, tell the story because you already know that their heart is probably somewhat aligned with what you care about. And be able to tell stories. I think the stories of transformation. So when we've supported, uh, in particular, kids, the scholarships for NTS, Colette and I would always set aside funds for that. And what I wanted and longed for as a donor mostly was I could care less about the money and I certainly didn't want to have a, a control piece or a they have to do this piece. But in all honesty, I longed for some something on the back end that said, you did this and it changed me. That A student experienced God in that moment because of a couple dollars put into something. That, that for me as a donor, closes a loop of satisfaction. I don't demand that. I don't require that. I don't make them send me a letter afterwards. But in all honesty, I, I longed deep within me to hear that something small I was able to do did something that God was able to do. So what are some common mistakes that you've seen happen in this conversation? I am not at all impressed with the the one-time letter, and they, they always come at the end of the year. It says something like, we're, you know, you, you're going to use a tax deduction, as if a tax deduction is why I give. Half the money we give is not even that kind. It's just cash where people right are and right needed. And so the tax deduction won the year end and we're trying to close the gap and we got a budget shortfall and all that. For whatever reason, for me, that doesn't, that doesn't motivate me a lot. Maybe it should, maybe that's my brokenness, but I'm much more motivated by the story, the transformation, the risk, the something that the transformation of my life is I spent way too much of my time building my kingdom and had a big Jesus is so patient and kind where he finally says, I'm going to call you into something much bigger and it's building my kingdom. And so when that transition happens in me, then I'm just looking for what, what builds his kingdom, what advances his kingdom. And so, and, but I still bring my fiduciary side. Like if I can put X amount of dollars in a weird way and get this kind of cool transformation, I want to, you know, I, I guess that's the return on investment person that I am. I can't just let that go. I'm, but I don't ask for that or everything. I'm not looking for a report every time we do something at all. So I think the flippant, the tax deduction, the end of year, the gaps, the, those don't work real well on me. And also, I've, I've learned this personally too, but and I want to hear your responses, but I think when you sense that someone's approaching you and it's of desperation or fear, how does that affect you? Because I think... It's pretty obvious. Usually you can see right through that, right? If someone 
is just feeling like they're they're in a hole they got to get out or they're in debt or or whatever you know it's just they're coming from a, a very fearful perspective talk about your response to that that is that is a funny one because we we do see that like, in the back of my mind. This is uh, we'll edit this out. So the the, the we'll see yeah <laughs> the the so let me get this straight in my mind. I'm thinking you you were stupid and you did this this and this and this and now you're behind and you want me to fix your stupidity. Sometimes that's floating in the back of my mind. Not a glamorous thought. I'm like you should have come to me a long time ago. <laughs> um, desperation is rarely. Uh, what I respond to, um, because my God is not a desperate God like that, that he is not, it's not desperation that caused him to send Christ to the cross. It was a compelling love. And so the desperation piece doesn't work real well. So, and, and I want to add to that too. Like I know there's been times when I've received letters or heard people say, we're not doing this until we get the money or we're closing down if we don't get the money or whatever, right. something drastic will happen. And I think, well, if God called you to do that and he's going to supply the need. And and I've, I've just learned personally when I approach people, I don't approach it and saying, we're, we're not going to do this unless we get the money. I approach and say, we're doing this. We know God's going to provide. We've thought this through. So we're not coming mm-hmm. in like we're not hedging our bets on whether or not people give. We know what we're going to do. We have a plan. We And here's the money that we feel like we need to do it. But, but um, yeah, it just seems like when you pull that desperation card, that can only work maybe once, and that's that's it. And you can never go back to it, which is another reason why I think it, it fails. I agree. I would agree with that. We're talking about maximizing money for the ministry, and one way is cultivating donors, not just having them in your back pocket, not just knowing a few, but how do you cultivate donors within the ministry so that those resources are a little bit more accessible? No, I think that's good. I think in a purely logistical sense, I think a youth pastor does face a a little bit of a difficulty because the donors are parishioners, and so they're maybe already giving to the church. So I would, if I was a youth pastor or youth worker, if I was going to do anything with donors, I would definitely from my leadership find out what their expectations are. Like, what am I allowed to do and not do? How am I allowed to ask and where? Because to me, parents of the ministry are probably your best first place. I'd want to go to parents. I'd want to have some kind of, uh, you know, gathering for them and share the vision and mission. And then those stories float out. So you say, okay, I'm sharing this with everybody. Have a little thing at church and you want to talk about where you're going. But then you're going to want to start to try to go to some of the ones one off, one at a time, have a cup of coffee, where you at, your your daughter, your son are here, and let me share the story, and I want to share a little more of myself with you in this story. So now not just the, the vision and mission, but who I am and what I'm trying to do, and then start to say, is there, could you help me? Could you help me raise funds? Could you help me with people? Could you, there's a lot I want to do. Money's not the only answer, but it's part of the answer. And so I'd want to start to get a little group of folks together that I could call upon when needed, but also that they can share more than just their money with me. I mean, I, I like people that come to me and say, I don't just want your money. Can you help me understand this? Can you help me in some things I know and some things I don't? But I do respond well to people who want more than just my money. But I, I limit that. That doesn't Everybody doesn't get that. Everybody that gets a check doesn't get all of me. But when there's that connection where you sense in that moment that the Holy Spirit's kind of drawing us together, there's something more going on here. I, I want to be partnered with a youth worker or someone like that. 
recently you've stepped into something with us, and we've talked about this on the podcast about where God's leading our organization, never the same, particularly Claim Your Campus, towards doing this event in 2020. And we've talked about some of the reasons behind it, but it's been quite a an experience that you and I have been on, and you've stepped into our organization to help us with this project financially. Talk about what 2020 means to you. Why are you doing this with us? These last four, five, six years, whether it's on the corporate side or even in some cases the church side, I just feel and have felt for a long time like the culture is winning and darkness is growing and light is not winning. And so I guess I just took the stance, Jeff, that culture was going to do what culture wanted to do so that I would go sit at what I call my compound, the house. I've shared the story that I'm going to sit in my lawn chair and eat popcorn and watch the culture go to hell in a handbasket. That was the strategy. Uh, if that needs to be edited out for the pastor's world, you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think hell is in the Bible. I, I think hell is in the Bible. And so that was happening, and, and I just had decided that's how it was going to be, and that's fine. I'll watch it go down. And and I have, uh, my wife and I have two younger children, a freshman and uh, eighth grader. And so last fall, as they're in their school, I'm watching them come home, and I'm watching something different happen, where their faith, their desire to be salt and light, to be compassion and kindness, they were getting, in a weird way, almost bullied for their faith. So I watch my daughter wear, I think I've shared with you, a very nice dress to an event. And and the fact that it wasn't as risque as a dress could be, that she was actually in some ways harassed for being modest. That So so we're at the place where modesty is harassed. And I, I'm watching my kids come home and have to defend values and virtue and morality and whether you want to call it faith or not, trying to live good, wholesome, modest, and moderate lives. And I just started, I get mad, and God never made me to probably sit and be passive. That's not much of what I am. So I started to get kind of fired up and angry. And and then I meet with you over lunch, and you tell me how you're so excited about the culture, and you got all this hope. And I'm thinking, dude, are you reading the headlines? Are you reading the same headlines I'm reading? And and I start to hear what you're saying, and then I'm in living with my kids that watching this faith thing happen. And the big moment came when my son, I've shared this story, was sitting with me back last fall, and he said, Dad, what were the big problems when you were in school? And I said, oh, that's easy. You know, drugs and drinking and driving cars too fast and beating people up. And and he said, oh, yeah, just like today. And I said, no, 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 it's nothing like today. Because in front of me on my computer, I had a picture of these gummy bears, these gummy vitamins, gummy vitamins, these little red bears and pink and green and yellow and these cute little vitamins. And the problem was that these were not vitamins. They were actually, I guess, a new form of crack like in a vitamin form that looks like a kid's vitamin so the kids can carry them around with them and nobody knows. And I said, here's the difference to my son. I said, when we were growing up, we knew cocaine was bad. We knew drinking was bad. We knew all that was bad, and it was bad for us, and we didn't care. That was the difference. We didn't care. No one told us cocaine was good for you. No one told us drinking, driving. No one told us that those were good for you. We knew it. But the difference is, at least as I can see it, the culture is now saying what is evil is good for you. That if you don't take this vitamin, 
you're you're bad. You're bad for not taking the vitamin. You're bad if you don't take this. And so it's much different. And I sensed in me this, that this hopelessness of if something doesn't change, if the cultural needle doesn't move, if somebody doesn't do something bigger than we're doing, the trend is just going to get worse and worse. And so when you said claim your campus 2020, and then we had lunch, it finally, I guess, dawned on me that this is something that has the potential to move the needle, to push back. I, I'm a historian. So the thought of the D-Day invasion where 100,000 troops, the doors open and we fire everything we have and we take the beach and maybe, just maybe, just maybe your idea and what God has given you with Claim Your Campus 2020, just maybe, instead of evil being on the offense, maybe we can put evil on the defense, get it on its heels, push it back off the beach and get it to start moving back instead of us. And so what got me into 2020 uh, was the belief that my maybe skills as a fundraiser, stockbroker, business person, or how to ask for me, maybe I can put that to work into something that will push evil back because I'm just tired of playing defense. And in terms of the conversation that we've had about money, it's it's really interesting that that I was simply not even really approaching you to to take this on, but telling you the story, telling you my heart, and that's what resonated. And I think that that's what I would encourage to you listening is um, God's given you a vision for what you do with students, and it's to improve their lives. And maybe it's to get so many kids to camp this summer. Maybe it's to do whatever, whatever you feel like God's calling you to do. And the more people you tell, God's going to use that to inspire within them a vision too. And I've, yeah, it's been such an encouragement to us, to me personally, Bill, to have you and your skill set and perspective to walk into this incredibly exciting opportunity with Claim Your Campus 2020 because as we've shared in this podcast, and those of you that follow our ministry, you know that we are seeing prayer change campuses across the country. So again, imagine students praying earnestly for change in every school in America. What what that can do, not just for the school, but collectively as a nation, what that can do to change the country, the trajectory that we're on. And I believe it's a it's a here's a here's a scriptural reference for you: a new wineskin that God is. That God's building and, and putting together right now is um, is going to going to where students are and that's at the school that's where we know they are so it's exciting thank you for being a part of it no problem. thanks Bill <laughs> what an epic ending the Thought Factory podcast is brought to you by Never the Same whose vision is to see new generations transformed in Christ to further the kingdom of God learn more at neverthesame.org <laughs>